Welcome to Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes, a podcast. In this series, hosts Cassie Robel, the Director of Education, and Kathleen Trott, the Shop Manager for the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop, will introduce you to all the departments and people at Arizona Opera that are necessary to produce the operas you enjoy. In this episode, we will meet Joe Spector, President and General Director of Arizona Opera. So welcome back. We're going to start with the trivia that we left you hanging on for a little while from our last episode with Carrie. So in 1849, the Astor Place riot in Manhattan, New York was caused by a prop being misplaced, two actors arguing, or a tech person sitting in the wrong chair, and it was two actors arguing about who was the better Shakespeare performer. They both had sides. It was a whole thing that was a long-standing feud between them. Um, our second one was true or false. When asked what a theater should be, Giuseppe Verde once said, what should a theater be? A theater should be full. That was true. And when the globe burned down in 1613, the one known casualty was a man whose breeches caught fire and then was put out with a bottle of ale, the director who went down with the ship, or the performer who lit the cannon that started the fire. It was actually the man whose breeches caught fire. They got put out by a bottle of ale and he was fine. Miraculously, there are no accounts in that fire of anyone being severely injured, which is astounding given how flammable the globe was. For our first episode back in our 21-22 season, we are joined by Joe Spector, the President and General Director of Arizona Opera. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we're going to, before we really dive deep into what's coming up in our 21-22 season, we figured we would kind of meet the General Director first. So to kick us off, for those of you who may not know what it actually means to be a General Director, what do you do? Well, it's a great question, and I think when I started doing this work in, wow, I guess it's 2012 is when I, I started generally directing, <laughs> uh, I, I had the same question myself. What, what, are, what are you supposed to do? And I think, I think the answer is that it, it's different for different people. Uh, folks that do this work sometimes come from the world of being uh, in the production space, uh, like Kathleen. Sometimes they come from the place of being uh, stage directors. Occasionally they come from a place of being singers or, um, or, or maybe some other kind of administrator. And I think that the job um, can be different for different uh, general directors depending on what strengths they bring. I think that the, the, the unifying principle of the job, regardless of what that sort of palette of experience is, is that um, you're responsible uh, as the chief executive of the company for making sure you have uh, the right people on the bus um, to make sure the organization can get to where it needs to go with um, with skilled workers. And, and there is very skilled work involved with opera in every department. Um, and making sure that the company has an artistic plan that is sort of um, oriented around the community that the company serves that uh, that makes sense and that will uh, that will inspire people because with with opera companies and this is different than 
ballet companies and, and usually symphony orchestras, the general director for opera companies, particularly of this size, they are both the chief executive officer and the chief artistic officer. And that really is a different than a ballet company. You have usually an executive or managing director and you have an artistic director who is very often someone who um, has dedicated their entire life to the practice of dance and choreography. And uh, with opera, it's just a difference in the business model. So at, at the larger companies, there's often um, a music director or an artistic director that's separate from the chief executive officer. But for a company of our size, which is around seven, $8 million operating budget, they do sort of both sides of the thing. And um, it's, uh, every day is different, I will say that. You know, having done this for 10 years this coming spring, um, I can say that I, I don't think I can remember one day that was just like the day before it or after it. And it's one of the um, most interesting jobs because that variability in problem solving keeps you on your toes and it keeps you growing and learning. Uh, but it's also, you know, sort of a wild thing um, to be, uh, you know, guiding an organization that's changing uh, very often while the world around us is constantly changing. And that's, that's certainly been true over the last year and a half, but even before that, um, you're an arts organization. You need to be responsive to, you know, the real world around you and how you serve it. And that keeps the job very, very interesting. So what has been your favorite part of being a general director? My, my favorite part easy, easily is connecting with people that are involved. And that's not just, um, that's not just audience members. It's not just the board. It's not just donors. Um, it's being here with folks like you and feeling like you're part of something that's a bit bigger than one individual person. And I, I think of opera and, and I guess probably art in general as uh, like a campfire that people gather around. And the, the campfire is important because it sustains us in a kind of way. But it's the fellowship of being together and what that sort of community um, can be that's greater than an individual that makes me so inspired to do this work. And, the, you know, unquestionably, it, it is the human singing voice being close to that particular campfire that's so special and different from every other art form. Every art form has its own unique properties. Um, and I find the singing voice, you know, as a, as a, as a tool to, to, to breathe life into storytelling in this particular way to be very inspiring for me personally. But, but really at the end of the day, what, what I love most is the fact that we are together experiencing that thing, that special thing, and that we're hopefully uplifted by it. I think that's a very common thread for all of us who have chosen to be in the arts industry in general is that we like it because we couldn't do this by ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's mission, mission driven work. And, you know, I, I hear myself talk sometimes and I'm like, wow, this is like, I really drank the Kool-Aid, but, <laughs> but, it but it's like true, <laughs> but it's true. And, you know, I've done work that has been stimulating in different ways that, that was not uh, working in opera. And I, I know what that feels like for me. And, it, and I, it's, there's no indictment on that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being in a career that is not mission-driven in that particular way. Um, but, uh, but man, I can't imagine life without that now. So what is the Joe story? How did, you, how did you end up doing all of these 
crazy awesome things? Well, um, uh, well, first I'd say the crazy awesome things happen, but for um, working with you guys and <laughs> you know that we do them together. Uh, so the so the, the end of that story is I get to work with awesome people like you, and and we do the awesome things together. But but the Joe story was um, a. If you were looking at it from the beginning, it looks like a really meandering path. And I think if you look at it from where I am right now, it looks like, wow, you couldn't have planned this better. <laughs> and um, the truth is it was more sort of the, the former than the latter. But I do think about the Steve Jobs quote, you know, looking back, the dots are all connected. Um, you know, I started out as a really normal kid. I was born in Maryland. Uh, I played peewee football and, you know, it was, you know, kickball at the end of the street. And I did goof around with music. I had took piano lessons and I played clarinet. Um, I did not know that. Clarinet was my first, clarinet was my first <laughs> instrument in band when I was in elementary school. <clears throat> um, and and I, I, I did always love music. I'll say that. But I did not have opera in my life in any way growing up. And when I moved to Miami, Florida, when I was about 10, um, I, we we decided that, um, or my folks decided that we would go to a school that was a public school, but it had a magnet program for the arts, because they knew that that me and my sister Liz enjoyed um, enjoyed being involved in music and theater and things like that. And it was there when I really started getting interested in the idea of having a life of music. I don't I want I don't want to say a career in music. I don't think I thought about what a career was in you know seventh grade, but. But I started having this feeling that music was needed to be in my life in a, in a bigger way. And I had a band growing up with some friends. Um, I was really committed as a music student. I did a lot of choir, a lot of choir stuff. I moved to trumpet, but I really wanted to be a rock musician. I really wanted to be a rock musician. That's the music I listened to. You know, it was Casey Kasem, Top 40 on the yeah, weekends. Yeah. And, uh, you know, rock and pop music was just, that was... It, it wasn't like I was rejecting something else. That was just what I heard and what I loved. And, you know, and I, and I dreamed of getting a perm and, you know, like, you know, rocking out with like ashen wash jeans on a, on a stage in a stadium. That's what I, and I they just, I just couldn't think of anything better than that. And um, when I got into uh, high school, I went to New World School for the Arts, which is um, arts, performing arts, again, um, I don't know, you call it a magnet school exactly, but you have to audition to get in. It was a pretty small school. The entire undergraduate, uh, uh, not undergraduate, but high school classes, you know, just a few hundred kids. And, um, and it was there when things really started to solidify for me, uh, you know, really seeing that music was going to be not just something in my life, but my life and my career. And there, there were a bunch of little moments that I can recall really very crystal clear. But I would say that two really momentous summers for me at uh, Tanglewood as a high school student between my uh, junior and senior year and my senior year of high school in my undergraduate um, career in college, those really moved me. I, I was immersed in classical music uh, both of those summers. It was the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. Um, and, and it was at that point where I, where I thought to myself, this is really special. Classical music is special. The operatic voice is special. And among people that I was friends with in Miami or that I went to school with, I, I felt like I was one of the only ones and, and maybe the only one that was, that, that was connected to opera in particular. 
and what was what was sort of inspiring to me about that was the idea that there was this special thing that um, fewer people knew about than I thought should know about it and the idea of being sort of an evangelist for that not not for keeping it to myself but to be able to share it with other people and to be part of sharing it with other people that that's where that took hold and then uh, for college I went to um, Tufts University and the New England Conservatory of Music simultaneously a five-year double degree program where I was a political science major at Tufts and vocal performance at NEC and uh, at that point I was you know pretty fixed on the path and a lot of stuff came after that but that, that's how it all got started so that all led you here so how long have you been at Arizona Opera when did you come to us exactly Joe so I got here just over five years ago, um, June of 2016. It, it's, it's wild to think that it's been over five years, but it has. And, uh, you know, before that, I was the general director of Austin Opera for four years. And before that, I was at the Metropolitan Opera for two seasons as their director of institutional giving. Um, but it was a, it was a three-year stint in finance before that and eight-year stint singing opera prior to that. So it, it all sort of built on that. Um, educational background uh, to get to this point. And I honestly don't know if there's a single moment of any of that going back to probably going back to peewee football that um, <laughs> that I haven't had to call upon, maybe especially peewee football, uh, <laughs> um, in some form or fashion doing this work. And uh, as rewarding as it is, man, it's a wild ride. So, so five years here at Arizona Opera, and as, as you both know, it's been a time of, I think, generally very positive change um you know not not every effort is an unqualified win but um but i think it's been very collaborative and i'm very um i'm very proud of the work that we've done together and and what we've been able to put on the stage or in the community and the, you know some other less obvious ways in which we've grown the organization so so if you weren't the general director at arizona opera what would you be doing well, be a rock star, Cassie. I, I no, I, I get, once once I started losing my hair about eight years ago, I, I gave up. I gave up on that. Definitely rock stars out. That yes. What would you be? Thinking? Well, I have something that I joke about a lot, which is that I would be a barista, uh -huh. um, and I don't. What think, a performery response! Right. <laughs> I I as you guys know, I mean the the the. The thing that's hard about mission-driven work is that it is a part of you biologically in a certain kind of way. And it, it, you know, the idea, you're not just a person who um, heads up costumes at Arizona Opera. It, it's not, you are, you're not a person that does that. You are that. Yeah. And, you know, when I, I, I identify myself so closely with this work it's not a job i do it, it is who i am and and so the result of one of the results of that is that um it's with us we're home we're having dinner we're watching tv we're walking our dog mm -hmm. <laughs> we're trying to sleep mm -hmm. <laughs> and the job is there with you yep. and so i do have this fantasy which i which i think i would actually make me completely miserable but that that one day i'll get to be a barista where like at the end of the day, 
I serve someone the latte, the last latte of that day. It's definitely a latte because that's my favorite. Maybe I serve myself a latte. Maybe that's my thing. I get my drink staff, like my staff <laughs> drink at the end of the day. It's a latte. <laughs> I'm just telling you. And um, and and then I and then I just go home and there's not like, oh, do I have other lattes to make? Should I be making lattes while I'm watching uh-huh. reruns of Alf tonight? Yep, you know? yep, <laughs> it's, yep. it's like the the I, I will just go back and make more lattes tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I it's it's hard for me to imagine a, a life where where it doesn't it 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 doesn't stay with me in that way. But it, occasionally. And I know you both know this. I know you both experienced this yourself. Wouldn't it be nice to, you know, to, to, to put the lattes away? And I'm sure there are people here that are better at this than me. I'm not extolling right. this as a virtue. I want to be totally clear. Right. I actually don't even think it's necessary. I don't necessarily think that spinning on a, on a work challenge, you know, while you don't have the resources around you to actually make progress on it is a, is a strength. But I do think it would be easier in a job where where it was more tactile and 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 didn't have a, a a project arc associated with it even tactile doesn't make a difference you do tactile work and you're still it's still with you all the time but but where literally you, there's if you made 80 lattes at home that night like you wouldn't be advancing the purpose of Starbucks in any way or whatever <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever coffee shop would have me. I was asked this question by someone else pretty recently within the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, I always make my, my wise ass barista comment, which is not really that wise ass. I mean, it's like, I genuinely am curious about that. Um, but I think, I think if I were to give a more serious answer, it, it might be, it might be doing what we do with, with like unmiked or Mm -hmm. even a podcast Mm -hmm. like this, because Mm -hmm. I love, talking with people and connecting with people mm-hmm. and connecting other people to one another yeah. so much. And that, that's actually something I might not have known that I, that I enjoy as much as I do right. if it weren't for the pandemic, because right. I never would have done that show, sure. um, which Cassie, you work on all the time with me, yeah. um, if it weren't for, for that situation. And, and I just love bringing people together from disparate uh, you know, different lives and then seeing sure. how they interact and, and trying to foster a dialogue. And that's really neat to me. And it's, it's actually sort of an extension of the opera work too. When I think about it, you know, Absolutely. the people around the campfire, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting to be part of just stoking the, you know, stoking the tinder and, and helping to bring people closer. So I, I guess it's related to that. Yeah, that's great. I totally agree. We are going to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a few upcoming events at Arizona Opera. As we begin our 2021-22 50th anniversary season, we are excited to be returning to the stage in Tucson and Phoenix with four productions, El Milagro del Recuerdo, Carmen, A Little Night Music, and Cosi Fantuti. In addition to our four in-theater productions, Arizona Opera will be releasing its first feature film, The Copper Queen, in October. You can find more information and how to purchase your tickets on azopera.org. Our Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Shop Masterclasses return with Intro to Shibori Dying in October and Intro to Silk Screening in November. October will also kick off our Coffee at Care series at the Care Cultural Center and the Brown Bag Lunch Recitals at the Arizona Opera Center featuring the Marion Roos Pullen Arizona Opera Studio. 
To find all of Arizona Opera's upcoming events, visit azopera.org slash upcoming events or azopera.org and click calendar. Please be sure to check the required COVID-19 safety requirements prior to attending an Arizona Opera event. If you missed any of Arizona Opera's digital offerings in the 2020-21 season, they are always available to you on Arizona Opera On Demand. To never miss a moment, be sure to subscribe to our email list and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Okay, so Joe, so you were talking a little bit about repertoire and what we've done in the past. So why don't you talk a little bit about what we're going to look forward to in this upcoming season? Yeah, it's, it is such a, um, it's such a wild and wonderful season to be coming back together with. And of, of course, we're starting with uh, the Copper Queen film, which is opening uh, next month. Uh, details soon to be announced, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, on its own, that's just such a testament to the period of time that we've come from. It was a work that we planned on putting on stage initially for the opening of the September uh, Red Series, September October Red Series in 2020, and then with the pandemic, we fortunately had the foresight to see that um, you know live performance was not going to be possible pretty early on but we still thought we were going to be able to film the Copper Queen in spring, uh, excuse me, September, October, 2020. And we, we were definitely wrong about that. It was still too dangerous to get together and ended up postponing that project to uh, ended up shooting in May. And there was all kinds of work that went in to making that film happen beforehand. And uh, finally the film is done. It's in the final editing stages. The director's cut is complete. There's a trailer. It's all pretty exciting. Uh, and, and now that culminates in, a release um, that'll be again in, in October. So, um, you know, one of the thoughts there was uh, we knew that buying a little bit of extra time because of the uncertainty of the pandemic was a good idea, but we didn't want to miss the chance to have an artistic offering in the fall when people are used to seeing our work. And so, uh, whether everyone's back in Arizona or if they are in another city or if they're in another country, um, they'll be able to tune into that. And that, that is really is a monument, I think, to um, not just a, a fascinating sort of piece of music and theater uh, and direction, but also the scrappiness of our uh, tiny but mighty organization <laughs> to, to make it happen no matter what. And with changing circumstances that I think all of us were, were tested by, um, and, and now it is really close to complete. So that's, that's thrilling. And then our first performances back in the theater will be El Milagro del Recuerdo, the mariachi opera that we are uh, co-producing with Houston Grand Opera and San Diego Opera that's uh, in December. And we, we don't always perform in December. In fact, we almost never perform in December. Um, that is a circumstance of um, availability of theaters and so forth. But it, it ends up being fortuitous because El Milagro has a, a holiday and Christmas orientation. Um, and it's, a, it's about a, how a family uh, fights to, uh, to stay together, um, how they fight for one another, and, uh, and the backdrop of the holiday is, um, is very powerful and beautiful. It's a beautiful story, and uh, I think it'll be a very special piece to welcome people back to the theater in the Red Series in, um, in December. And then we'll have the main stage series in 
the winter with Carmen, a little night music, and Così Fan Tutte. Uh, Carmen is Carmen. I, you know, <laughs> this is, this is although I, I have scheduled Carmen before when I was in Austin, I was gone by the time it was produced. Mm. So this is actually, in spite of the prolific nature of Carmen in our, your first one? our this is my first Carmen, wow. which is crazy. Which is crazy. That is, because I feel like I've done it a million. Right. <laughs> right. I, I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> but in my case, it's it's a fiction. Right. No, I, I programmed it. I cast it um, in, you know, in Austin, and it ended up getting performed, but uh, but I, I was already gone by then. So uh, so this is, my, this is my first Carmen as a general director. I've been in Carmen. Um, I was in Carmen in, in Memphis um, shortly before I ended up you know, moving away from uh, singing, but that, but I, I loved it. And I, and it's, you know, these pieces, Carmen, Boheme, Traviata, Marriage Figaro, they, you know, it's, it's surprising when you look at actual data, you know, these pieces bring more and, and often more diverse audiences to our theaters for the first time than any other kind of piece that we do. And, and even though the percentages of um, different communities coming to our operas tend to be more diverse in in some of the smaller theater productions that we do in terms of the gross numbers it is those bigger works that have such a uh, powerful ability to just reach a lot of people so i'm um, you know that always is exciting for me and uh, you know it, sh it should be a great way to come back to the main stage a little night music um that's that's uh, you know one of those musical theater pieces that works so well with operatic voices and um you know we'll have a wonderful cast led by patricia Rissette. uh and, you know it, that's a dream uh, that's going to be a beautiful production and then a new production of cozy fantute that will feature our mariners pool and studio artists both um, past and present and uh, that's directed by lauren meeker and you know it's a, it's always exciting to do a new production and, and even though we're only here in the beginning of september as we're recording this um, we, we have to build that scenery and start in the costumes a lot sooner than that. So it's a great season and, you know, it's, it's easy to see, I think, with all of those offerings, how we think as an organization, each of those pieces has an aspect that hopefully will be fulfilling for people that love opera, but also hope, hopefully will open a, a door for someone who hasn't been served by the art form before or by our organization before, and they're different doors. And I think that's the key, um, that, that is certainly a key of how I think, which is, you know, it, it can't always be a musical theater piece, you know, sure. it can't always be a mariachi piece. Sure. But, but if we keep thinking, like, in what way can the work that we're putting on the stage each time invite a different group of people in, or hopefully multiple different groups who we, we haven't served as fully before, then, then, then we'll be okay, you know, we'll be on the right. So do a pretty pretty hard pivot and talk copper queen for a little bit so when this airs we will be man we'll be weeks away from copper queen so we know that it's been filmed you shared that before are there any sneak peeks you can give us into the post-production process well um let me just say that you know it has been a pretty steep learning curve figuring out <laughs> how to create and I, i'm sure this is true for everyone uh by Kathleen's knowing laugh, I know she's there. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we weren't we weren't uh, geared to be a, a film production company when we started out, and and in a sense, we're not really geared for it now. We we brought um, not only our cast and creative team into the process as we would have even with an in theater work, but we we partnered with Manly Films 
um, which is a Phoenix-based media company, to um, to be the production services team, and they they brought in all the cameras and the skilled workers that are involved in uh, audio and visual and um, and, you know, and contractors for sound mixing and all sorts of resources that we, we don't have endemically as part of an opera company. So at, at this point, uh, when we were recording this, um, we've gone through already um, all of the production planning time mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then doing that all over again when yeah. <laughs> we had to re-engineer the whole thing Three as times. a film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Yep, thank you. Thank you for your service. Kathleen's <laughs> <laughs> like, that's important. <laughs> it, it is. It, it is. And that's, uh, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning because, you know, uh, and I just want to say, I, I, I don't know who has the Joe Voodoo doll today, but on a day, <laughs> on a day, on a day where I decide, you know, we're going to do this project, we're going to make it a film. I just want you to know. And this may only sharpen the, the, the needles for the voodoo doll, but uh, I want you to know that I know and appreciate that a decision like that puts a lot of machinery and energy and creativity into motion. We just, I don't do it with I don't do it with levity. We yeah. just pass the voodoo doll around the office based on the time That's of fine. year. I, I, I actually I, I'm going to give uh, Angie Bonici who was a colleague of mine in Austin, a shout out, because she actually had a Joe Voodoo doll on her desk. <laughs> and uh, there were days when I know that I, I probably put her through a lot and I would just check on it, you know. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, listen, it, it is what it is. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so there was all of that pre-planning, planning process, and then finally, after rescheduling multiple times, uh, we, we finally got everyone together to do the shooting of the film in the uh, Whitcoff black box here at the Arizona Opera Center and that was back in May um, you know we we still were only just starting to get ready access to vaccines so we had have will continue to have a lot of safety protocols in place but it was it was a very um, even compared to now I think probably more more austere environment for for those procedures um, because of the because of the non-universality of vaccines um, but we went through what I think was, I, I think for, for, for everyone, a, a pretty uh, intense but rewarding production process, um, not knowing exactly what it was going to, to look like, sound like, how it was going to feel to be yeah. shooting a film in our rehearsal space, which is yeah. it's a sacred space already for us, but to transform it into uh, you know, a quasi soundstage for this purpose, right. you know, it was you know, what is, what is it? Right, <laughs> All these unknowns, right. uh, you know, it, it, it worked very well, but it was still just, you know, a, a wild piece of the process. And then uh, since then, um, Crystal managed working with Zach Bender, who's the film editor at, at Manly, um, pretty regularly to, um, to, to craft the director's cut. And now we'll be moving to the final cut of the film. And then it will be a piece we set free into the world. You have like a glimmer in your eyes. I'm excited. It's funny. This whole time I've been thinking about it. it when you said that we recorded it in May, it feels like a lifetime ago, it but it really has not been that long. But it's just it's been a really fun process. I'm fairly removed from the process working in education. I just my position doesn't naturally involve myself in in some of that. But it's been really fun to watch this process also being someone that has never been involved in film creation. So I'm just, I'm just excited for it to get out into the world. Let's, um, before we jump into our trivia, 
Let's do some fun speed round questions. You were a singer for a while um, before you came uh, to your general director life in the previous life. Uh, what, what role that you can't actually sing have you always wished that you could have done? Probably Scarpia in Tosca. I mm -hmm. never got to really play a real bad guy yeah. I, I i sang i got to sing enrico uh in lucia de lammermoor and he's 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 really lousy but he's, <laughs> he, he's lousy for you know reasons that aren't all terrible like he's trying to redeem his family yeah, and, yeah. you know he ends up doing some really terrible things and forcing his sister into marriage and all that stuff but you know but he's not so awful scarpy is genuinely terrible yeah, yeah. and he's and and i love the te deum so i it's on it's almost certainly Scarpia. Scarpia. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is your favorite non show Arizona opera event? Non show so Arizona opera event. Yeah. That is not a show. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm gonna cheat a little bit because I'm not sure if this is considered a show, but right. I would say student night. Okay. Student night oh, at the yeah. opera because it's you know, it's not technically a performance in a way, <laughs> but but what's but but I just love uh, hearing how kids respond to opera. Yeah. It's always just so real. Um, they the kids, uh, and I just want to say it for everyone that's listening to this podcast. When you think about the future of opera, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to Whitney Houston. I believe the children are yeah. our future. Uh -huh. Like kids love opera. The yeah. best audience response yes. is often, and it's sincere. It's not like they're yelling for the sake of yelling. They mean it. I always say my favorite part of Suda Night is the authenticity because they, they're reacting to what's on stage in real time. And they, and I don't know why this happens to us as we get older, but they have no fear in authentically reacting they're yeah. not holding back their emotions and yeah. mm -hmm. it just i mean it's, and at the end it's like a rock concert yeah. i mean they're just the applause is yeah, like yeah. nothing else yeah. I, I enjoy it when something happens and you can hear there have been a couple times where you're like somebody like backstabs somebody right and you can hear all of the kids go the flip side of that is you know, sometimes there's something that's directorially not working the way yes, it was intended and you don't realize it until the kids the are kids, there. Yeah. The kids laugh at like a, you know, a tragic moment in the show and you think, <laughs> oh, oh no, <laughs> we've done something very bad. And by that time, it's almost uh, yeah. too late, uh, but, uh, but at least you know that you missed by then. <laughs> but no, no, student night to be sure. Yeah. Um, okay. And then last, if you had to go to a deserted island, what are the three things that you would have to take with you? That's really tough. Um, well, I mean, my first my first reaction is uh, I have a wife and two children, so I don't think I don't consider them things. But if I didn't bring them, but I had like a really great book, they'd probably feel pretty upset. Honey, I actually <laughs> I knew you were going. To, I almost jumped in and said, not in. Not well, including your it's family. It's deserted then if you bring others. So you're all by yeah, yourself. You're all by yourself. You, yeah, you can't bring other people. Well, probably uh, a stack of black t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Joe uniform. That's for, the Joe yeah. uniform. So no, we've got black t-shirts. Yeah. Black t-shirts. You know, I, I, I do not... I'm not proud of the fact that I'm sort of addicted to my phone and checking email all the time, but I, I probably would say, especially since it's a deserted island and hopefully there's like a good satellite signal oh, yeah, and my roaming is sure. activated, 
I'd have my phone. And then I need something. Oh, wow. Um, the third thing. Jeez. That's really tough. I, there's, there's so many things you'd want to have on a deserted island that aren't a set of black T-shirts and uh -huh. a telephone. <laughs> like, I'd probably want something to read, but how do you just pick one book? I don't know. Like, I'm going to ask you, like, what's the best answer anyone's given for that? We've I've, never asked anybody yeah, that before. Is that right? You're yeah. setting the tone right I'm now. I'm setting Maybe the tone. We well, I'm going to go with, uh, you know, like, listen. If you have the phone, you can you can you, you can, have access to the world. That's you know? true. Like, that's you true. All the world's libraries. You do. And I, I, I probably, uh, I feel like I'm missing some sort of like creature comfort that would make okay. this more soothing. I'm gonna. I'm just a gonna. Latte. Have to Maze, a latte. A latte. <laughs> exactly. The one latte. Can you imagine? <laughs> this is your last latte. You're gonna be on this deserted island forever. So like, take your time. <laughs> Will there be refrigeration on the island? Is the next question because I've got the cow product, you know, I know. The dairy. <laughs> well, your phone only lasts until the battery runs out, and then it's not. <laughs> so a phone charger. Where are you going to plug Where it in at? To the coconut? I, I think I, I think I would have to have a, a solar power. Yeah, yeah. we're falling yeah. down a rabbit hole yeah. right now. Is, I guess I should ask: Is there any sort of sustenance on right. this island? Because maybe a bow and arrow or something. <laughs> To catch gonna, my seagull. We're gonna need to I, like, refine. I think that's telling because I think my first thing is I would be like, I need a knife. I need like a, a like a utility pocket multi-tool thing is right. what my first. And Joe was like, t-shirts. <laughs> I just want to point out uh, that I was a that I was a really not very skilled Boy Scout. <laughs> so me having a weaponry. <laughs> you know might not ensure a longer life it might it might ensure the opposite of a longer lifespan so just i'm That's just gonna funny. put it out there yeah. you're, you're probably right you know probably a swiss army knife would be a good idea but that's that's the practice that's the sense of practicality you get from being an opera general director for this long well do we have t-shirts right. you know <laughs> tell me more about the t-shirts are they are they cotton poly blender are they 100 percent cotton all right well that's about uh, it for today. We're gonna, a great way to end the episode. Let's do our couple trivia questions mm -hmm. um, and then you'll have to tune in next month for the answers. For the answers, yeah. All right, so let us jump into our second season trivia. Which of the following operas does not have music in Bugs Bunny's What's Opera Doc? That's the one with Bugs and Elmer, right? Okay. So, The Flying Dutchman, The Valkyrie, Tannhauser, or Das Rheingold? So, only one just, of those Only one four. of them is not, not included. In that. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you give the list again? Mm -hmm. The Flying Dutchman, The Valkyrie, Tannhauser, and Das Rheingold. Am I guessing too? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I... I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Dutchman. That's actually the one I was leaning towards. As okay. Well. But if it's not Dutchman, it's probably Rheingold. Valkyrie, I know, is in there. And. Valkyrie's definitely in there. Yeah. I'm gonna go, yeah. I'm, I, it's, it's, I think it's Dutchman or Rheingold, but I'm gonna go with Dutchman. I'm not sure I ever have watched that other than the like, you know. I don't think I've, yeah, I'm going with Dutchman. Okay. It's a barely educated guess. <laughs> <laughs> True or false? 
Wagner cried bravo for his own opera and was hissed at by audience members. That feels true to me. <laughs> That's truthy. It might not be true, but it's truthy. It's truthy. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Joe. It was really fun. Thank you for having me. Of course. This was fun. Thank you so much. Next episode, we will be joined by Miriam Shieldcret, one of Arizona Opera's education teaching artists who has been with the company for four or five years, and she's going to chat with us about all things education. Dr. Shieldcret, right? Dr. Miriam Shieldcret. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us, Joe. We'll be releasing a new behind-the-scenes podcast every month, so make sure to check our website, azopera.org, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And join our email list so you never miss a moment. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Amazon Music. Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes is presented by Arizona Opera's Department of Education and Community Engagement. These programs are made possible in part thanks to the support from Karen Fruin, the Molly Blank Fund, Dr. Rex Brewster, Invest in Kids Charitable Gift Fund, the Marino Family Foundation, the Arizona Republic, Cardinals Charities, the City of Peoria, Desert Diamond Casino West Valley, Kiwanis of Lishfield, and a consortium of individual donors. The Behind the Scenes podcast is also part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative that encompasses a wide variety of programs that go beyond the opera stage to develop the next generation of opera artists, audiences, and philanthropists. To learn more about the programs that are part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative, please visit azopera.org and click Next Gen Initiative. These programs are made possible in part thanks to generous support from Karen Fruin, Roma Whitkoff, Jeanette J. Siegel, the Molly Blank Fund, APS, Jody Pelusi, and a consortium of individual donors. We would like to extend a special thanks to the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop. This podcast is produced by its hosts, Cassie Robel and Kathleen Trott, with editing and music composition by Sean Mallow.